Hello, and thank you for tuning into the Starting Small Podcast. I want to say thank you for tuning into these episodes weekly. This episode marks episode number 25 for the Starting Small Podcast, and wow, it has been such an amazing journey learning from all these great entrepreneurs, talking to them, sharing their stories with you, and I hope that you have learned something as well. I want to celebrate by doing a giveaway. I'm giving away one of my custom dotted journals that I ship out to each guest. I request that they send me a photo holding the journal, and then I promote the episode on release day with that photo. The thing about these journals are it's super exclusive. I kept a journal for myself for my notes, and then I send out a journal to each guest. I don't give them to my family or anyone else, so you would be the only one with a journal along with all of the other great entrepreneurs. To enter this giveaway, all you have to do is go to at starting small pod on Instagram, and you can see more details specifically on there. But basically the rundown is you go to Apple Podcast, leave a five-star review, write something that you enjoy about the podcast, send me proof, and you're entered into the giveaway. It takes about two minutes, and that's all you have to do. It's completely free, and you have a chance to win a $50 custom dotted journal by Lloyd's Term. Without further ado, I want to get right into the episode, but first I want to say thank you to this episode's sponsor, Manscaped. Manscaped has the number one razor on the market, the Longboard 3.0, and this razor is waterproof. It doesn't nick, bump, or anything. It's the smoothest razor you can get out there, and you can get this razor or any other products on their website with code STARTINGSMALL for 20% off. That's code STARTINGSMALL, and you get 20% off of anything on their website. Finally, I want to mention that I offered this episode specifically in video on my YouTube channel, Starting Small Podcast. You can visually see me and Joe Foster, the founder of Reebok, during this interview. The only downside of that is the episode is 100% raw and the audio is not like you're hearing now. Now, the moment you came here for it, in this episode, I interviewed the legendary Joe Foster, the founder of Reebok. And what's interesting about Joe and Reebok is he branched off from his grandfather's brand, J.W. Foster & Sons, which his grandfather pioneered the first track spike, which revolutionized running as we know it today. Listen as we talk about Joe's upbringing, the history behind J.W. Foster & Sons, and the departing of the family business to create the brand Reebok. Also, stay tuned for the end where we talk about Joe's new book, Shoemaker, which he shares more insights and stories of his history and journey, which you can find at jwfosterheritage.com. And enjoy the episode. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by the legendary Joe Foster, the founder of Reebok. Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Cameron. Yeah, so I just want to mention to the uh, listeners out there, Joe just released a new book called Shoemaker. It shares a little bit more about his story and the story behind Reebok. And I just purchased that book. I'm very excited to read that, Joe. I'm receiving it this week. So congratulations on that release also. Thank you very much. Yes, I think your friend is a good read. I Most can't. people are enjoying it, which is very good. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to it. So I want to start out with your upbringing. So you were born in 1935, and then where did you grow up? It's a long time ago, isn't it? 1935. <laughs> well, that was four years before World War II. I was born in Bolton, that's in Lancashire, in England, which is near Manchester. Probably a lot of people know Manchester these days with Manchester United. But um, so it's near Manchester, uh, and Bolton is just slightly up above overlooking Manchester in many ways. So I was, uh, I said, I was born in 35 in 1939. Well, you don't remember first much of the first four years. I remember little bits. But then I had six years during the war, those war years. So I was brought up with uh, no lights, everything lights, everything sort of uh, switches off. And uh, I just said, yeah. uh, but, but when you're only four, five, six, seven, it's what you get used to. That was life. Mm -hmm. uh, you, no street lights, nothing. So that was life. But uh, you know, we, we could see the air raids when they happened in Manchester. You could we could look out over Manchester and see the result of bombs falling with fires, etc. Wow. But you know, it was uh, well, it was an upbringing. When you when between four and ten years old, that's what you you just expect. It's nothing different. For sure. So. To give a little bit of background to the listeners out there, Reebok branched off from Joe's grandfather's company called J.W. Foster & Sons. And Joe, if you don't mind, your grandfather founded this, and I presume which this had much influence on your future with Reebok. What resulted him in, to enter the shoe business? Well, my grandfather was a cobbler by trade. He learned his, uh, his skills from his grandfather, his grandfather Sam, and his grandfather... Uh, was down in Nottingham, which is about 50 miles from uh, Bolton, where Joe lived. And uh, 
he, he picked his trade up from there, but he used to see his grandfather repairing cricket boots. Now, although cricket is probably not a big thing, you know, in America, mm -hmm. they do have spikes in the bottom. And he asked his grandfather, well, why have you got spikes in the bottom of your shoes, granddad? And he probably said, gives you better grip. Mm -hmm. When they're on the plaster, they don't slip. Oh, possibly a light bulb moment there for Joe. Yeah. So off he went. He was, he was a member of the local Harriers. And uh, although he wasn't a very good runner, he thought he could probably get one upon the guys by designing a pair of shoes for running in with spikes in the bottom, which he did. And it did progress him forward. And he, he came second when he would normally come halfway down the field. Wow. Raised a lot of attention, of course. And that was really the start of his business as, as a running shoe manufacturer. So, so where was J.D.B. Foster's and Sons based? And where did he, did he work out of then? He worked out of Bolton. Okay. He was number 57 Dean Road, which will mean nothing to anybody <laughs> unless they know Dean Road in Bolton. But it was a small workshop in Bolton. In fact, it's just not there anymore. It was not done to make way for Bolton University. Mm. So it's underneath the university now. But in Bolton, that's where he started. And Bolton, as I say, is very near to Manchester. Gotcha. So was JDW Foster & Sons strictly catered to the running niche, or did they ever explore any other shoe types at this time? Well, um, I mean, what we have on record is Joe's first success was still in running, and that was 1904, with the man called Alf Schrob, who, running in a one-hour race, he broke three world records, including the farthest distance run in one hour, and that was in Glasgow um, at the Ibrox Park. <clears throat> but really, the Belle Epoque of uh, Foster's was the 20s because they had a world war. In 14 to 18, there was a world war where they had to diversify and repair army boots. Mm. That over into the 1920s. By 1920, in Antwerp, he was supplying Olympic teams with his running shoes. But during the 20s, uh, and we get in 1924 and 1928, gold medals galore, of which um, Harold Abrams, um, Eric Liddell and Lord Burley, mm -hmm. uh, they all wore his shoes. And those three are the ones who are um, immortalized now in the film Chariots of Fire. So yeah. he was flying people. But also, <clears throat> and we have a letterhead, which shows 96 football or English rugby teams. He was supplying them with training shoes and boots. So he was diversified in, in those days. And and he did have uh, a good business, but his main business was uh, was with athletics. Yeah. Unfortunately, he was to die in 1933. Gotcha. So those records that you were mentioning there, were those um, your grandfather's track spikes or were, the, were those trainer shoes or what were those shoes? Those shoes would be uh, football training shoes with small spikes in the bottom and, and a rubber heel. Okay. Um, and he also made football boots. In fact, Foster's made football boots for, I think it was um, Moscow Dynamo just after the war. But okay. that was after grandfather. Gotcha. So your grandfather pioneering the running spike, was there anything they tried to do to patent-wise the spike to protect the discovery of the spike shoe before competitors leached on? Not to my knowledge. I, 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 it's either they were not interested in that or there was no competition to that sort of in that way. Mm. That uh, <clears throat> communications probably in the early 1900s in terms of legal and otherwise were not there. I, I just think uh, they were happy to have a business and yeah, for sure. make money. For sure. So your grandfather passed prior to your birth, which your father Jim and his brother acquired the business. Did the name re yeah. remain the same at this time? Well, of course, it started off in the 1900s with J.D. Foster, but by the time we got to the 20s, he'd had two sons. So it was J.D. Foster and Sons, and in brackets, athletic shoes. Um, but And that sort of, that was the business then, which carried on until 1939 when they limited the company, they limited their uh, responsibilities. But uh, yes, that was the name of the company, J.D. Foster and Sons. And my uncle, John, or we used to call him Bill because he was a J.W., um, Uncle Bill and my father, they ran the business then after grandfather died. At this time, were, were they selling any shoes internationally or was it still remaining in Bolton at this time? Well, surprisingly enough, uh, 
with uh, well, I suppose it was still the empire in those days. It's now the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. Um, with a lot of English-speaking nations uh, going down to Australia, New Zealand, through India, <clears throat> and Pakistan. And uh, grandfather used to advertise in Athletics Weekly. Athletics Weekly again had the same sort of distribution wherever there was a a Commonwealth country or a, an empire. It it was distributed there, and a lot of people used to write in to Foster's for for their um, catalogue, please send me a catalogue. Now, a lot of those would be athletes who required a pair of running shoes, but a lot just wrote in to learn the language. This was a way of learning language, was mm-hmm. to write go for catalogue. So uh, yes, we had a, a big distribution. And it wasn't until after my grandfather died in the early 1950s that uh, Jedward Foster signed an agreement with Yale University. Well, I'll say it's Yale University. It was Bob G and Jack and Frank Ryan. Okay. They were head coaches at Yale, mm-hmm. and so they were taking two hundred pairs of uh, Foster's hand-sewn shoes every month and distributing them. Probably not through the retail trade. I would suggest they distributed through the university college network, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, so a lot of shoes were going that way. But that was that was I would say that was the limit to their uh, experience with. Uh, the international growth of a, of a business. So that Yale deal right there, was that distributed amongst their track team? Or what were those shoes for? They were track. They were all track spikes. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So you and your brother Jeff both began working for your father then. What age did you specifically enter the business? Well, my brother, he, uh, he started when he was 15. I started when I was 17. My brother was uh, part of the business in 1948. Uh, but it was 1952 before I came into the business. And by 1953, that was the age you had to do national service. Mm. Uh, as it so happened, we both went at the same time. Well, my brother's slightly after me. But in 1953, I had two years. We both had two years away from the family business doing our national service. Mm. Jeff did his in Germany, and he saw Adidas, Puma, and the rise of a, a different type of shoe. Wow. Okay. Gotcha. So what were both of your roles within the company during your younger years then? Well, when we, uh, we started off working on the floor, mm-hmm. just making shoes, of course. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm coming back from national service. We were doing the same, but coming back from national service, it was, uh, what we saw was a company failing. We saw a company that was still in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, uh, or early 50s. And here we are late 50s, well, 55, and it wasn't going anywhere. Adidas was coming in, taking their business. uh, And where we possibly could have been in the the football or the soccer business, uh, we didn't get there for some reason. They, they missed that, that area. But they had a good business with, uh, with athletics. Being a smallish company, it, it didn't seem to matter. Problem is that uncle and father, they didn't seem to get in at all. And by the time we came back from national service, there was a full-blown feud going on between them. Mm. Um, as you know, with Adidas, it's, uh, it's Adi Dassler and Rudy Dassler, they were the same. They just couldn't get on together. But... Rudy had the good sense to leave the company and set up his own company cartoon. <laughs> gotcha. So during this time, did you ever get a chance to study any university? Um, I was at college before I started. Okay. And I was at engineering college, so I had a, a background of engineering. Um, <clears throat> and when, when we came back out of uh, uh, the forces, we both did a, a night study for shoemaking because we only knew what we'd learned on the floor yeah. at the business. And we thought it was time not only to uh, learn something more about how to make shoes, but um, get some contacts in the business because those proved very, very important to us uh, when we'd left the Foster family. Yeah, for sure. So what did those contacts look like? Were any contacts from rival companies or et cetera? No, there was nobody rival. They, they were... We, we were actually, you'd say we worked in the, in the footwear business, mm-hmm. but we sold our product in the sports business. So we weren't selling through shoe shops. We were selling through sports shops. Yeah, so yeah. that was the difference. We had a foot in each sort of business, a foot in the footwear business. But it was very helpful to have a foot in the footwear business because we needed to manufacture. We needed machinery. 
we needed advice on leathers, on different elements that we couldn't get just at Foster's. So we did that prior to, in 1958, leaving. But we, we, we didn't leave easily. It took us three years. We tried hard. We tried everything to tell father and uncle, you've got to change. You've got to make plans. You've got to start marketing this product. You've got to start even selling the product. They had no salesman. They just waited for the orders to come in through the door. And of course, that, they were getting shorter, smaller and smaller, and the, the time gaps were getting shorter and shorter. So, but they didn't listen to us. And Jeff and I, really, we had very little option uh, because <clears throat> I said to my father, look, you know, we, we need to do something here. And all he would say, look, when your Uncle Bill's gone and I've gone, it'll be yours. <laughs> And of course, the, the response was, well, I'm sorry, Dad, we, we don't want you to die. We don't want you gone. Yeah. This business will be gone long before you have gone, the way it's going on. Mm. So we had to, we invited him to come with us, but he, he wouldn't. Yeah. So, so we did it alone. So like you mentioned, you left, you and your brother left in 1958. So <clears throat> what was the response from your father and uncle during, the t during this time when you guys left? Well, uncle said nothing. Mm. He he was totally away from this. Father was uh, quite upset. Uh, yeah. In fact, he he did uh, when I, when I approached him, he did pick up a um, a letter opener, and he gave it to me and said, "Here, stab me now," sort of thing. <laughs> Which was like, "Look, I'm sorry, but you know, you've had our story. We we have to leave. We're going." Mm. So it wasn't too good. However, my brother still lived at home. I had become married and moved out and it seemed that I was given the um, well it was me I, it was my fault I had taken Jeff and I had sort of led him away and whatever uh, it took a few years to get uh, to get over that but uh, it, it yeah. wasn't too good but we we left we went into this uh, old was a brewing company Berry, a beer brewing company in the middle of Berry okay um, a bit of a ramshack building but uh, we left there to set up our company called Mercury Sports Footwear. Mm. So what was the Genesis logo for this Mercury Sports store at this time then? This was what led to Reebok? Well, um, for, the, uh, for the shoe, we had a side stripe, which was two stripes and a T-bar. Okay. But we had the logo, which was the, the Mercury, the running man himself, the winged, winged messenger. Mm. Which was very nice. We liked that logo. It was a good logo, and that worked worked very well for us for eighteen months. That is, okay. until our accountants, our accountants suggested that since we were doing quite nicely as a little business, we should register that name, Mercury. Mm. Fortunately, when we went to see uh, a patent agent to do this, and uh, he searched it and found out that Mercury was pre-registered in the footwear category. Okay. Um, the company when it registered were not using it at the time, but um, they would sell it to us uh, for a thousand pounds, which in those days, like asking you fifty thousand oh, yeah. dollars now, like okay, yeah, back pocket. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, we didn't just have, we didn't have that money. It was, that was impossible. But I went to see him, and he said, "Joe, he said, I, you know, you're going to have to find a new name if you don't want if you can't buy it." We could uh, we could take them to court, and I said, "How much would that cost?" He said, "Probably a thousand pounds." Man, so no difference either yeah. way. Either way, no. He pointed through his window. It was a nice early summer's day, and he pointed through his window to a sign, Kodak. And I said, "Well, why Kodak?" He said, "It's a made-up name. It doesn't mean anything. It's not anybody else's." Mm -hmm. So if you can bring me a made-up name, fantastic. However, we sat down for quite some time trying to find a new name. Uh, we had birds, animals, you name them all. But in 1943, during the war, I had won uh, a race and I won a, a dictionary. But okay. it was a Webster's dictionary, mm. which is an American dictionary. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I still wonder to this day how in 1943, during the war, I'm picking up a Webster's dictionary. And I know there were a lot of Americans that were over in the UK at that point ready for D-Day and whatever it was, but yeah. how a Webster's dictionary. But, and uh, I've been thumbing through this. I like the letter R. I thought that's a good, strong first letter. Mm -hmm. And I just flipped the ground, and then I came across Reebok, R-E-B-O-K, -E small South African gazelle. 
well, Gazelle, yeah, sounded right there, didn't it? In yeah. fact, I think Gazelle may well have been one of the, the names they presented him with, the, the patent agent with. But we looked at this and said, yeah, that's great. Now, had we had a, an Oxford English Dictionary, it would have been R-H-E-B-O-K, okay. which would not quite have looked the same. Yeah. You know, a little bit off, sort of thing. So I may well have passed that by. However, I put Reebok at the top of the list of these 10 or 12 names I took to the page agents and I said, look, we need this one. Mm -hmm. We need to be in love with the name. You know, this is a passion. It's got to be. We, we can't just have a name that mm, just does. No, we need that. And as it happened, Reebok was the only one that came out. We was able to be registered. Mm. However, the registrar did say, we can only put you in section two of the register. Oh, why is that? What's that? Well, he said, if somebody comes to me and said, I am making shoes out of Reebok skin, I can't stop them. Oh. Oh, yeah. Okay. So 20 years later, the registrar came again and said, okay, we've moved you now to part one. Oh, why is that? He said, well, everybody now knows that Reebok is a shoe, not an animal. So, so that was 20 years later when they came back to you and mentioned that. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a wild. So at this time, gaining all that experience from J.W. Foster and Sons, how were the roles dispersed between you and your brother then? Were you guys making the shoes, marketing them, distributing, etc.? Right at the beginning, yes. So just the two of us and a couple of sort of family, family people who would help do a little bit, some sewing the uppers together and pieces like that. But mainly it was just Jeff and myself making the shoes, um, selling the shoes, advertising in a uh, cycling magazine, which was be started with cycling shoes. And cycling magazine brought us some very nice results. Um, but as we grew, uh, as we've already said, we, we accused Fosters of not having marketing, sales, plans. Yeah. I slowly started to move towards that area. Did okay. the marketing, did the selling, did as well as doing designing. And Jeff, he looked after the factory. He, he was happy doing that. He was happy just looking after the factory, making sure. He, he used to take the designs and produce those in, into, uh, into shoes. So he did that, uh, that, that work, uh, the, not the design, the development work. He did the development work and looked after the factory. And I slowly, slowly backed away um, to start traveling. First of all, I would travel locally, okay. uh, around the local area, which is when I, I would call in on retail sports stores and I'd say, look, here I am, I'm Reebok. And more often than not, I would, uh, I would get the response, Reebok? Why do I need Reebok? Yeah. I've got Adidas, I've got Dunlop, why do I need Reebok? And that was sort of okay. So I've got to get somebody. He needs to need, I, I've got to get to the point where he needs me. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, so were you pitching internationally at this time? You're, you're saying you're doing phone calls and they're questioning who Reebok was at this time. So were you pitching outside of the UK during this time? It was a bit like Foster's at this point. Okay. Although I, I, was, uh, I was definitely pitching inside the UK. The rest, because we started advertising Athletics Weekly and the same thing Foster's did, a lot of people came from... Uh, Many from Australia, New Zealand. We did get some from America. We got Bill Rogers, indeed, okay. <laughs> wearing our shoes. Yeah. And a few more. Of, uh, they, they were quite happy to import our shoes and, and try them. Uh, but mainly it was, first of all, starting locally. Mm -hmm. uh, rugby, which you probably won't know of rugby. No, uh, I, you may. Yeah, my high school actually uh, had a rugby club. Yeah, they were probably rugby union. In the north of England, it was rugby league. Okay. Same thing, but slightly different rules, different play. And we started supplying every every club rugby league. So we, we had the boots we could supply rugby league clubs. Um, and because it was purely north of England at that time, Adidas and others were not even interested. It was just a small area. Mm. So apart from athletics, um, which, is, which was national as far as the UK is concerned, but not a big business. Mm. However, in 1968, my first trip to the States. Okay. Yeah. The Board of Trade, which was sort of a government um, department, they, they wanted people to export. And they were advertising in the sports magazines that uh, they would provide a stand 
They will provide return air flights and they'll provide you with half of your hotel bills. Wow. If you if you would go to the NSGA show in Chicago. Well, I mean, you can't turn that down, can yeah, you? For sure. You just can't turn that down. Well, the trip to America, great. That's fantastic. But Chicago, in the first week in February. I don't know if you've been there. But oh, oh, yeah. I, I live about two hours from Chicago. And during that time, it's very, very cold. Exceedingly cold. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every year we went to Chicago, the only thing that you didn't look forward to was stepping out into that weather. Oh, yeah. Uh, really cold. Oh, nice and bright. Beautiful. <laughs> Unless you had a storm. A snow storm. Then, sure. then, uh, yeah. And we did have a snowstorm. I forget what year it is now, but we had a snowstorm which brought off the, the link line. I was there on that occasion, and that wow. was that was horrific. What an experience that was! It's in the book, but uh, okay. yeah. But however, 1968 was the first time I went over there. I didn't get any orders, but I'd gone with a friend. We were making some climbing boots for him, and funnily enough, the outdoor um, business in, in the USA, the outdoor stores, were quite happy to import some boots from uh, from my friend. Mm-hmm. Although the sports stores. They, they didn't have that experience. I, I guess the outdoor shops were used to importing skis and all the stuff that goes with it. They were used to doing that. Mm. But um, sports stores, no. And they said, well, where do you get your shoes from? And I said, England. And they said, New England? No, no, England. Across the water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. And it was like, well, look, when you get somebody over here, we, we can buy them off. We'd love to uh, take your shoes. It took me until nine. 1979, and I, I realized we needed a hook. How yeah. do you get it into the state? How do you get the people in the states wanting your shoes? By then, the running business was really growing big, 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 mm. and that was driven by Runners World. Oh and yeah, yeah, Runners. That was the bible. Everybody was out running, doing five k's, ten k's, uh, half marathons. You name it. And running was so big and growing fast. It helped Nike grow tremendously fast, mm-hmm. really did. And I, I knew Bob Anderson. I'd been across there and I'd met him in California. And it was just said, well, what do you need? And he started rating shoes. At first, he started rating them number one, two, three, four. And everybody wanted the number one shoe, which meant whoever produced it, whether it was Nike, New Balance, Brooks, or whatever, produced that shoe, they could never produce enough because all of a sudden the demand is we all want the number one shoe. By the time they managed to get the production up to that level, we were almost ready for the next shoe uh, uh, magazine, which would come out, I think the edition came out something like August. So uh, anyway, Bob Anderson changed that because he, he was getting a lot of stick from the trade. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was really getting a lot of stick. And they changed it to uh, star ratings. Five stars being the best. That was the hook we needed. We needed a five-star shoe. We got a five-star shoe. People would want it. Yeah. That way, you don't you don't have to try and sell something nobody knows. They come to buy. For sure. So it was in 1979. <clears throat> I had designed a shoe for the Commonwealth Games in Edmonton, and we got some very good results from them. Showed the shoe in the uh, February of 1979. 1979, <clears throat> and got some really good results. Kmart wanted to buy 25,000 pairs, and Paul Fireman came along. <clears throat> he was running um, a, a Boston Camping was the name of the company. So he was running that, um, <clears throat> and he was exhibiting there at, um, <clears throat> at the show. <clears throat> Excuse me. Very good. So he, he came along and said, look, Joe, yeah, <clears throat> looked up a... I go with these shoes, love to try and uh, do distribution, but we need a five-star shoe. And I said, Paul, we have a five-star shoe. It's not got them yet. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure this, I'm sure this will get a five-star. <clears throat> I had one or two meetings with Paul before the August uh, issue came out, but on, on the day it came out, it was on, on the stands and uh, I phoned Paul probably about seven o'clock in the morning for Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> I said, Paul, can you get out there and get one of those magazines and see how we did with uh, with Aztec? An hour later, he came back and said, Joe, he said, you got 
five stars for Este. Wow. But you also got five stars for your other two shoes as well. That was the Inca track shoe and the Midas racing shoe. So we got three five stars. So now we'd got with Key and with Paul, we'd open the door. That's amazing. So who did the rating for the shoes? Do you know? Well, uh, Bob Anderson and um, Runner's World, they had their own laboratory, we'll say, yeah. to do the testing. And by then, they must have been making a lot of money because it was that magazine. Everybody who was running in, in America mm-hmm. did it. And, of course, I think they had a bit of a link up with Nike. They were the much closest uh, factor of numbers, closest companies to them. So I think maybe they collaborated a little bit. But either way, um, they they had this way of testing, mm-hmm. and because because they listed down what they tested, we knew how to make a shoe. Yeah, to fit those tests. Mm-hmm. Uh, forefront flex, cushioning, supination, pronation, all that sort of stuff. So we made our shoe. And as I said to Paul in the in the February, I think we've got a shoe that can do five stars, and we did. We had a shoe. That's amazing. So, say a customer goes to the Runner's World magazine, and they see Reebok in there. How were they able to purchase a shoe? Would they physically call you in England, and then you would make the shoe, send it out, or how did that process look? Well, we uh, the the magazine came out sort of in in the August. Mm-hmm. By September, I already had Paul signed up, so he was taking over the advertising and he was taking the uh, uh, calls. Okay. But it wasn't until the the show in 1980, the NSGA show in 1980, that he was able to have a stand at NSGA as Reebok, mm-hmm. and he started taking orders from dealers. Okay. So <clears throat> that was that was the way that started, of course. The thing is that I had seen uh, Kmart, and Kmart wanted the shoe, brilliant, but the the price was too high, mm-hmm. far too high. Yeah. We were making these in, in England, plus 25,000 pounds would have been six months production from our small oh. factory. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, you know, we hadn't gone into this blind. We knew that if we got a five-star shoe, we'd want additional production. That I managed to be able to get from Barter. Mm. And Bath were down near London, so I could get that. But I also know we had to get a better price, mainly because uh, Nike and a few more were making it in the Far East by then. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had arranged, in fact, in November, the, the end of October of 1979, I had, a, I had a flight arranged to go out to Korea to see the factories. And that was quite interesting flight. Yeah. It was a ticket. It was a first-class ticket. Wow. But a first-class standby, which was a bit around, and it was around the world in 80 days. I asked my secretary for a return trip to Korea, but she came up with this one and said, well, you know, the, the agent, uh, the travel agent says, this is a good ticket. Why don't you take this one? Because it went all the way around the world instead of going around back. Um, and it was only £600, which is about $1,000, which is yeah. not, not too bad. In fact, it was probably cheaper than just getting the return ticket to Korea. For sure. It was an eventful ride. Um, we landed in Tehran three days before they took the American hostages, uh, which was wow. I didn't know about until after, of course, which is probably a good job. Yeah. And, uh, and when I'm in Hong Kong, I'm going on from Hong Kong to Korea, and I, there's, a, there's a letter waiting for me. Please, please call me. This was Alan Nichol. I was due to meet him in, in Korea. He said, I'm in Taiwan. Please give me a call on this number. I called him. I said, Alan, what's your problem? He said, the president, President Park, has just been assassinated. And we've all left Korea and we're all in Taiwan. Oh, oh. right. What do you want me to do? Well, you can come here to Taiwan or you can stay where you are. Um, so I said, let me come and join you in Taiwan. So I did. Join him in Taiwan. Then that following day, they all left to go back to Korea because... Although they thought there could be problems with the president being assassinated, it seemed there was nothing, nothing happened. I followed them a day later. Okay. And everything was under martial law, which was guns on every door, every door, everything. It was quite scary at the time. But it was an interesting trip because I was then able to go over to uh, L.A. and meet up with uh, a person there, which was very interesting. He, uh, he actually lived in Ginger Rogers' old house. 
Mm. And it was brilliant to go through Ginger Rogers' house. Yeah. Uh, and also to go up to a studio, a dance studio, and just walk on that precious floor. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so power. And then I, I ended up back in Boston. By the time I ended back in, I went to Boston, Boston Campy no longer existed. Paul and his uh, his partners had separated, and Paul was just stuck on Reba. Then I, I just wondered, because I thought, well, maybe maybe we were going to bolt on the Reebok business, which sort of would make sense. No. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Paul was all in. That was it. And he was told, which I guess is the reason why it was so successful. Mm-hmm. Because my attempts had had six more earlier attempts, between 1968 and 1979, I had six earlier attempts which had failed because of lack of money, lack of connections, whatever it was, or maybe the other side of the business was doing better. Mm-hmm. But this one, Paul was all in. So I'm a, unaware about during this time retail stores. What were some of the major retail empires during this time that maybe a shoe company would dream to get into? You, you mentioned Kmart. Were there any more? Well, for me, no. I mean, I uh, the stores, the, the running stores were starting to build. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were specialized stores. And uh, yes, possibly going with one of the... Uh, Footlocker or something like that mm-hmm. may have been, but you then you then stuck with one retail outlet, whereas we wanted to be distributed all over, yeah. uh, rather than just with one retail outlet. And uh, in those early days, it was tough. Okay, Paul got his shoes from uh, from Barter. Twenty thousand pairs was the first lot of shoes that uh, went over there. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Barter didn't get the shoe right. Oh no. <clears throat> it, we were using EVA, which is a plastic, uh, instead of a rubber sponge, this is a plastic blown sponge, which made the shoe very light. Mm-hmm. Rubber rubber was quite heavy by comparison to uh, EVA. And Barta had their own rubber plant, and they were curing this uh, EVA in their own plant. Unfortunately, it was new. Yeah, And they got, some of it they got wrong. They, they didn't get the curing time right for some of this. Not all the shoes were falling apart or collapsing, but a good percentage. <clears throat> so to cut the story short, Paul ended up with 20,000 pairs he didn't pay for. <laughs> which, which, surprising enough, helped him because we're, we're talking about how do you finance this? Yeah. And this is all right if you've got a credit line. And he would have had a credit line from Barter. And had Barter, one, made the shoes right, and two, got it at a better price, he would, would have stayed with Barter. But the Far East, that's where the price was, and they could make the shoes. I'd seen them on my trips over there. They could make the shoes. There was no question about that. Um, but, of course, they don't give you any credit. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you you have to put a letter of credit up there. In other words, you or your bank has to be happy to pay, no matter what. Yeah. And uh, that creates its own problem. You've then got to finance this growth. Um and Paul, Paul was running out of money. <laughs> oh. It's not that easy. So, and this is where uh, Stephen Rubin came in. And Stephen Rubin, he he's uh, Pentland Industries, uh, which is big. Uh, well, he, he used to be called Mr. Sneaker because he had that many fingers and that many pies of. He, in fact, he nearly bought Adidas. He was at that point. Uh, but what what um, what Stephen had was a company in the Far East. Uh, called ASCO. ASCO was Associated Shoe Company. And they were sourcing a sourcing agent. Okay. So they were in the Far East sourcing the product. Um, so what he did is he gave Paul, for a piece of the action, of course, he gave Paul a credit line. Well, mm. I mean, that's all Paul needed. Once Paul got a credit line, he, he could take as much product as possible. Yeah. And that's how he managed to sort of satisfy the growth, which was fantastic to do that yeah so he was satisfying what very nicely now we've got the financing now we've got the product right and the products have moved out to the far east so yeah at this time where were you guys doing production was it remaining in the uk primarily or did you have new factories anywhere else <clears throat> well no we what we had of course was the production now coming out to south korea yeah, for yeah. running for running shoes. But in the UK we were making the spikes, all all the small technical stuff, we were still making those in the UK. It took some time before that 
went for Farish, we had to get some volumes. Farish is okay. Well, the uh, South Korea was okay, but you you needed to run a production line, and I think it's something like two hundred and fifty pairs a day. Yeah, on one line before you can actually keep that line. Well, it turns out to be a lot of shoes that, especially if you're trying to make spike shoes, yeah. uh, which is not, not quite the demand there was for road running shoes. So uh, that stayed in the UK until it grew. When it did grow, it moved out. Mm-hmm. But, um, so we got the finance. But really the big, the big day came. The growth was good and the company would have grown nicely, but the companies started to grow very rapidly when Arthur Martinez, our tech rep down in LA, hmm. his wife Frankie. Frankie was going to these new aerobic classes. She and her girlfriends, and well, two or three times a week, they were loving it. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. And Arnold was saying, What's it like this? What, what are these things? What are you doing? What, we, we're doing exercise to music. Oh, okay. He went along and had a look, and he saw that the uh, instructor after class were. Uh, were wearing possible running shoes or plimsolls mm-hmm. and the rest of the class, nothing. Mm. So he thought, I wonder, could we make a nice, soft, comfortable, glove-like shoe for the women to wear doing this exercise? He was right. The shoe he produced was lousy because it fell apart. And I'm a shoemaker and I would say, no, no, you can't do that, you can't do that. However, what am I to say, you can't do that? Yeah. The women loved it, <laughs> even though it fell apart. He, he was in America, in California. The girls didn't care. If it fell apart, they'd go and buy another shoe. Wow. Was so common. That's was amazing. Just, yeah. Um, okay. It took about three months, but they, the, the people who tanned the leather, they, they started to make a leather which had a, a stronger leather, mm-hmm. more, more like a clothing leather than a glove leather. Uh, and this worked perfectly because it was still soft. They made it still soft. So they got the right feel and the right product and at that point of course he's down in california he's down in hollywood that's uh jane fonda starts wearing the shoes to do her videos in and so it went on and we got uh, sybil shepherd she picked up her emmy in some uh, orange high tops and this sort of not only did it become well reebok became a woman's company yeah adidas nike they were male they were sweaty. Yeah. No, it was women. <laughs> and this was a shoe and a company making shoes specifically for women. And that was something that was original. Yeah. So original, they just blew the company up. I think we went from something like 9 million, 30 million, 90 million dollars, 300 million, 900 million, and onwards in successive years. Wow. Uh, the growth was colossal. And and I guess the next problem is how do you manage to get the product to satisfy that demand? Yeah. Unfortunately, both Adidas and Nike, Nike in particular, have just hit a wall. You know, every company gets somewhere and then plateaus or dips a bit. Mm-hmm. And at that time, this is Nike's dip. And just so happened that we were, again, luck. Factories there that Nike were having to cancel, Reebok could go in and take up the production satisfy both Reebok and it satisfied the factories. Yeah. So, you know, you, you got to ride your luck and that was riding luck. And that became totally a global shoe for women. Fantastic. Wow. That, that's crazy. So what do the demographics look like between male and female? What, because you mentioned that Nike and Adidas, they were primarily male. So mm-hmm. was Reebok primarily woman then at this time? At that point, yes. I would say at that point, we were 75, 80% women. Wow. And that was scary. That was scary. Yeah. And, and, and it was also scary with the demand. And Paul, Paul said to me, Joe, I said, I know how to slow this down. Mm-hmm. I know how to stop it. He said, but I've no idea how I could start it again if we did that. So we just had to keep on really fighting the fight. And the problem was supply. It wasn't how do we go and sell this. We didn't have to think about how to sell it. Yeah. This, this was how we keep up with the sales. And uh, they did. They managed to keep it with those sales. And uh, by the time I left the company, I retired in the end of 1989, mm-hmm. when the company had got that big that, uh, well, it was beginning to be a numbers company. Yeah. Uh, for me, you know, the excitement wasn't there. I was jump. I was going on planes. I was at 35,000 feet for probably half of every week. 
and I was uh, I was arriving, being met by a limousine, being driven to the best hotels. <laughs> we were sitting down, having nice meals and whatever. But that you know, the chase had gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you mentioned that some of these high figure women were wearing the shoes at this time, and I feel like that has a huge result on the success on the women's line. So. What was the process like to maybe get more figures to wear your shoes or the sponsorship process for athletes to represent Reebok? Well, I think I think the big thing happened with being down there in Hollywood. Yeah. And a lot of the stars just started wearing the shoes. Okay. Uh, and we had them all the time and Mick Jagger was wearing the shoes and wow. they were doing all <clears throat> so it hit that level. Yeah. And at that point it wasn't a matter of paying for it. Okay. I mean nowadays these these people were influencing the business, really influencing it. Um, and we, we also did Monte Carlo. We we did um, a pro celebrity tennis event, and this was an aid of the Princess Grace Foundation. And Wendell Niles, who was uh, an empresario down there in in Hollywood, he used to invite all the stars different times. Um, John Forsyth was very good. He uh, he he would turn up at any time. Mm-hmm. Every time, and it was only the second time that uh, I met, and this was in uh, in Monte Carlo. And John Forsyth came up to me and said, "Hi, Joe, how are you doing?" And I looked at him and said, "John, how do you remember my name?" He said, "We've only met once before." I said, "Joe, that's my job." All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, yes, and that's his job to remember things like that. Whereas. I mean, I could remember him quite easily. Mm-hmm. But we had Sean Connery, we had uh, Roger Moore, we, we had lots and lots of people out there. Sigourney Weaver, of course, one of them in the film uh, Aliens. Mm. So that that was the big influence. That influenced the world. And Reebok became number one. Wow. It was bigger than Nike, bigger than Adidas. That's, that's and, amazing. Yeah, it, it was amazing, yes. Fantastic story. Fantastic ride. We've enjoyed it. In fact, that's why... Eventually, I got around to writing that book. Mm, for sure. Yeah, that's such an amazing story to share. So with your time at the company, did Reebok ever enter other categories such as clothing like Reebok does today? Or were you still only shoes with your time? Shoes was the drive. Yeah. But clothing is a visibility. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you make clothing, people want Reebok. And because of uh, all the influences, they will buy clothing. They will buy, and that's been going on. If I think, for my knowledge, it first started with Adidas in the UK when they were making replica shirts for the football teams, and you could see all the young kids they were wearing the Adidas T-shirts, and so that gives you visibility. I, I remember we, um, I, I I started up the the Reebok Racing Club. This was when when running was going big, and we we're having lots of marathons, mm-hmm. and. Uh, <clears throat> We had a lot of really good athletes, possibly not top athletes, one or two top, but a lot of good athletes. And because uh, because these were on television, we used to televise these uh, marathons, mm-hmm. I used to get to the guy and say, look, you've got the shirts. You run at the front for as long as you can run at the front. We'll get a lot of television. Yeah. And that way we can keep you going with shoes and whatever. And that's what we used to do. So we had a Reebok racing club. Uh, winning all these, well, running in these marathons, probably didn't win that many, but uh, we were always at the front, always got our athletes to get to the front and stay there as long as they could. Yes. That, that was the visibility with uh, with apparel. And so apparel, yes, apparel gives you that visibility. For sure. More so than a shoe. For sure. So you mentioned retirement. You said 1989 is when you retired? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... Yeah, so did you keep up with new innovations with Reebok as the company progressed, even when you were outside of it? Well, yes. I mean, I always used to visit. We used to go to all the shows. We're invited to the NSGA shows. I think the Super Show started off in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And so we used to go and we used to keep up with, with what was going on with Reebok. I still do. Yeah. As much as I can do. <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned you still do. So what is your favorite model of Reebok to wear today? It has to be. It has to be Aztec. Aztec. Aztec, Aztec was our five star. Okay. That that got it. And then of course, if we if we want to be second, it's got to be freestyle. Uh, but mainly that's a woman's shoe. But freestyle, yeah. You know, these were two iconic shoes for me. 
One got us into the American market and became a sensation in the running market. And the other one got us into aerobics and became an really associated with women and astonishing volumes. I think I think somebody uh, quite lately who told me that at the time, 80% of the USA wore a pair of Reeboks. Wow. And that's a big number. That's tremendous. So, so Joe, I, I like to wrap up each interview with this. If you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, maybe something you've learned or regret, what would that be? Again, this all depends on what your business is. But uh, if you if you look at something like the business I've been in, which is the sports industry and sports footwear industry, and I, and I think whoever you are, I think it's expect uh, to have problems, expect the difficulties. But look out for the luck and don't let it pass you by because it's there. And there are, there are opportunities. And if your luck comes along, you know, a lot of people say you make your own luck. Well, I think you see your luck. You, you know, making it, it depends. It, you know, the timing was right for Reebok. So I, I think if you are thinking of what you also know your business, mm-hmm. know who your influences are, how to influence your market, know how to get there. And finance. Finance is one of those things that keep it in your mind. Although don't worry too much about it or you'll never go there. Because if, if you think you need to cover every corner, you'll never, you'll never do it. We were young. I was 23, my brother 25 when we started. <clears throat> we were indestructible. We, we could do everything. I look back now and I wonder how we did it, why we did it. Because we were indestructible. We didn't try and cover every corner. Mm. <clears throat> we we just went ahead and I think if you're going to be an entrepreneur you've got to be willing to take a risk mm. you've got to be willing to do that for sure well, Joe thank you so much for joining me and to the listeners out there make sure to check out Joe's new book Shoemaker where he shares more stories and insights from his journey at jwfosterheritage.com thank you Cameron brilliant hey thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small if you would Leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.